Welcome to How to Change the World. This is a student-produced podcast, researched, written, recorded, and edited by Year 10 students at the McRobertson Girls High School, a public school in Melbourne. In their Year 10 Humanities How to Change the World elective, they were given free reign to choose the social issues they care about and explore how our Australian and global community addresses the challenges that face us. This podcast is entirely their work. This episode is about the stolen generations. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the first episode of Talk Back. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and also pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Charlie, and basically, we're a podcast that talks about some of the current issues in our society. With me today are Anvi, Dia, and V, and later on, there'll even be a special guest joining us. In this episode, we'll be talking about the stolen generation and its effects throughout the years. So, not many people actually know a lot about the stolen generation, including myself. Do you guys know anything about this issue? I don't really know much about it, but for about a century, Indigenous children were taken from their families and integrated into European ones. The new settlers believed the Indigenous Australians were inferior to them, I think, and so they wanted to let their culture die out naturally by slowly assimilating the children into their own community. Dia here. Adding on to what V said, they only took the half-caste Indigenous children. This was because it was easier for them to fit into European society. They did this to naturally eliminate the Indigenous community and their culture. Oh, and I think I forgot to mention, the reasoning behind the government's decisions at the time, I believe, was because of the discrimination based on skin colour and ethnicity that was commonplace back then. They wanted the country to be a white Australia, to fit in with their old views and society expectations. That's horrible. Did anything happen to try and stop this? Well, in the beginning, the government was very set on separating Indigenous children from their parents, and we can see this in their protection policies. Records of their original family and their place of relocation were deliberately destroyed to prevent the children from reuniting with their families. Actually, I think the government declared that this was unethical and unconstitutional, but that wasn't until around 1970. What happened was that all the states tried to get rid of the laws that allowed Indigenous children to be taken away from their families, and organisations also started to form to help families reunite. After a few years of struggle, the assimilation policy was abolished. I think it was in 1973. Wait, so this happened for more than a century? Actually, I'm pretty sure it's still happening right now. I think now is a good time to call in our special guest, Sue, because she knows a lot more about this topic than we do. Hi everyone, I'm Sue and I'm an activist for the current Stolen Generation. Current Stolen Generation? So you're saying that something like this is still happening right now? Yes, Anvi. Unfortunately, Indigenous children are still being taken from their families by the Australian government today. Sadly, this is an issue that not many people are aware of. Can you tell us some more about why this is happening? I mean, it's the 21st century. I thought that this kind of extreme racism and discrimination was a thing of the past. Well, in an ideal world, it would be. But forms of discrimination are still present today, especially for Indigenous Australians. For example, 
The Australian Constitution still gives the Australian government the ability to make racist laws and we are also the only country without a treaty with our Indigenous people. By this time, the current stolen generation is supposedly happening in a completely different way and for another reason entirely. The government claims that Indigenous parents are unfit to take care of their children as a reason to take children away. However, we can see that in most cases this is incorrect. That, that is why activists like myself are speaking up to try to raise awareness for this issue so that more people know about this problem in the hope that we can create change. Wow, I had no idea the situation was so serious. Can you tell us what has been done so far and if it made an impact? Yeah, sure. One of the more prominent activist groups is the Grandmothers Against Removals group. The GAR is basically an organisation that protests against forced adoption of Indigenous children, as well as unreasonable removal of Indigenous children from their families. They actually organised a protest in 2018, where 400 people gathered at Hyde Park on Sorry Day to protest for forced adoption laws. It's great that people are doing so much for this issue. Thanks so much for sharing. No problem. Thanks for having me. We'll go back to the earlier stolen generation now. What are some of the main impacts that this issue has caused throughout the years? This is open for anyone to answer, by the way. Okay, so there have been many effects of the stolen generation on the lives of Indigenous Australians. They are considered as one of the marginalised groups in Australia, with high rates of poverty, homelessness, unemployment, poor health and a lack of education. All of these factors of them being socially excluded is due to the widespread mistrust, prejudice and anger towards authorities the Indigenous people have faced. Many Indigenous people have had severe cases of trauma, depression and various mental health issues due to the stolen generation as well. We also can't ignore that Indigenous people have a higher rate of incarceration in places such as Western Australia and Northern Territory, and the existence of mandatory sentencing in some states makes this even more of an issue. But I also think that one of the impacts that is going to last for many generations to come is the loss of their cultural identity. They weren't able to be taught their own traditions and beliefs or take part in any ceremonies or religious practices and had to be taught everything from scratch. And I also think that the loss of your own family leaves a lasting impression. You aren't able to grow up in an environment with your own parents, knowing who your siblings are, because a lot of children in missions didn't actually know who their siblings were and could have married their own brother or sister. According to a report released by the Australian government, your social skills could be stunted. You could grow up with personality or behaviour disorders. Also, since you may not have experienced it, you may not have any healthy parenting skills when you decide to have children of your own, with no examples from others to learn from. The loss these people went through is immense. So now that we have a good understanding of this issue, I think we can get right into our open discussion. Just a quick disclaimer. These are just our opinions, none of us are from either group and we apologise in advance if we offend anyone or any group of people. So here's the first question. Do you guys think that what the government is doing with the current stolen generation is justified? Sorry, could you, could you repeat the question? I don't think I understood what it was trying to say. Oh, so just a little background info. The government is taking children away from Indigenous families because they think that some families are unfit to care for their children. Well, as reasoning goes, that sounds pretty 
plausible. Like people having to be taken away because their parents are unfit to care for them is reasonable. But the fact that there's so many of these Indigenous Australians being taken away from their parents hints at more of an issue. Yeah, sir, I agree. 40% of the children being taken away are Indigenous, and that is a lot for a minority group. Okay, so 40% is the big problem here because I don't think any minority group should have 40% of their kids taken away. That seems like way too big a number to justify for that reasoning, for parents being unfit to look after their children. It's, it's a bit too sketchy. Adding on to that, I feel like um, the government, like sometimes their explanation for why the children are being taken away, it's unreasonable. Or like, you know, sometimes they don't even give the reason to their families, which can be pretty frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can I just like add on to that? Yeah. yeah. So um, basically, I've read somewhere that apparently in some cases, the government just claims the child even before the child's born. And that too, without the parent's permission in some cases. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's really saddening. And again, kind of ties into what you guys have been saying yeah okay so i understand if they're taking the child away when the parents have proven that they're unable to look after their child but if the government is deciding to take away these children before they're even born before their parents are given a chance to actually show that they're unable to look after their kid that seems a little far-fetched to me i feel like the reasoning just does not work out here yeah so I get it if the parents have been abusive or something, but or if they have a drug problem, but you need to give them the chance to look after their kid before deciding that they're unfit to look after their kid. Okay, so what do you think um, should be done, like, in this scenario? Well, I feel like I've already touched on this in what I said previously, but I feel like the parents need to be given an opportunity to prove themselves as parents before they... Uh, the child is taken away from them because there needs to be a reason for that. You can't just take them away on a what if the child is mistreated. Yeah. I also think that the parents should be able to improve from their current situation when their child is being taken away. So the government should help in that so they can reduce that 40%. Yeah, so what you're saying is that they should help the family like improve and learn how to take care of their children properly instead of just taking the child away and not saying anything. Yeah. Yeah. I also think redemption is really important. Like in some cases, their parents may have not been able to fit to take care of their children, but later on they actually try and prove and they are able to take care of children. But then because of their previous mistakes, the government still takes away later born children of those parents which I don't think is correct. I think Charlie actually had a really good example of this, if you wanted to go on about that. Yeah, so there was a case where this mother was addicted to drugs and um, her first few children were taken away um, because of this. But after that, she reflected on herself and she actually got better. And she decided to try again and have like a new child. But then... That child also got taken away and this time a reason wasn't specified and she 
was really sad because she thought that, oh, just because my other children were taken away, you know, the government just thinks that they can walk in and take my other children too. So maybe they just didn't believe her or anything, but I feel like more should be, more attention should be given for improvement. Mm. Like they should focus on improving, you know, the family's habits, like for whatever reason. Yeah. And if someone has improved, that should be something that is really good and that should be supported instead of just shutting it down and saying, no, that's not good enough. We're still going to take this child away. I feel like in cases like that, re-evaluations need to be made to make sure that the parent is still unfit to look after a kid, not that they, and that they haven't learned from their mistakes. Mm. So actually, I think that a way to improve this is also to get a lot more attention on the issue because not many people... Um, know about the current stolen generation like a lot of people know about the past one but I don't think many people know that it's still happening right now so um, linking on to that there has been um, lots of protests and many organizations have been trying to raise awareness to this issue so Anvi do you want to just explain what kind of protest there has been so far and whether or not these methods have been effective Sure, yeah. So basically, so far, there have been like calm and civil protests where people gather in certain areas. There have also been petitions and other many initiatives that protest groups have come up with and have done in order to spread awareness. So if you guys want to talk about how you think that these protest methods are effective or not effective, like the floor's open for you to discuss that. Thanks, Anvi. I'm going to talk about petitions because I feel like a lot of um, protests and stuff happen throughout start by through a petition or something of the sort and I feel like if you want to use a petition it can either go one of two ways you can either get a lot of signatures and bring a lot of awareness or it doesn't the message doesn't spread and you end up having nothing to move forward with with your campaign so I feel like if you want to use a protest as an effective method you need to have a lot of signatures otherwise it really isn't effective so you need to market that as best you can yeah yeah agreed i feel like petitions are only effective if you get a large number of people uh yeah so basically i think that i agree with you guys i also think that peaceful protests are a really really good way to get the thought and idea out to the general public um because it's peaceful And so it still spreads a lot of awareness. Yeah, without being aggressive. Yeah. Like, adding on to that, with what Dia said, in my opinion, I agree with Dia. Peaceful protests are more powerful, in my opinion, than petitions. Because if you see it, like, on a piece of paper or online, okay, a thousand people have signed this, I feel like it's not as powerful as seeing a thousand people marching down a street. Mm. Yeah, it's more powerful if you see it for yourself instead of just, like, a number on a piece of paper. Yeah. So do you think that there can be other ways of spreading awareness for this issue or, like, other ways to protest that might be more effective? Well, there always is the choice of, like, violent protests or or choosing to use aggressive means to get your point across. But something that we need to understand if you resort to methods like that is that the public will never look at you the same again. Because if you're being Mm. aggressive, you're literally attacking the people, um, the public, by saying that what they're doing by being ignorant is being wrong. 
And I feel like if you paint it that way, you can never go back. It is not a very good way of protesting. Definitely. Yeah. And it's hard to change that image. Once you get that negative connotation on you, it's really hard to fix that. Mm. Yeah. Well, I feel like also to improve it, education in schools, because that's when people tend to soak up more information and they're still figuring out their own perspectives and beliefs on issues. So maybe like getting someone who knows a lot about the issue to go into schools and talk about it and be not be too graphic and harsh about it, but still saying enough information where people are aware. Yeah, so I feel like definitely kids at a young age should um, learn about this in school because I remember when I was in school, we learnt about, you know, like the European settlement and um, we touched on the stolen generation like in the past, but I've never heard of the current one until just recently. So that was kind of shocking. Yeah, same thing with me. Like, I feel like that should change. Yeah, and even if education in schools, because I know a lot of people don't really learn a lot in history during school, right? Because the schools can't cover every subject possible. When you are older and outside of school, your main source of education is social media. And I think this um type of awareness and stuff, if you put more online, it will eventually reach the right people because social media caters to your interests, what you are passionate about. Mm. And so making sure there's more of a media presence is always going to be helpful. Yeah, I also think that frequency in any aspect, mm. for example, frequency of social media posts or protests, mm. it'll help spread the awareness even more. Yeah, because currently they only do it, a lot of protests are only done on Sorry Day, which is effective, definitely. But I feel like they could really push their campaign further and really make a mark if they did it frequently, like what Dia said. So speaking of Sorry Day, um, do you think that Sorry Day is enough? Do you think that just... Um, a having like an apology for all of the suffering that has been caused is enough to make up for the mistakes. Um, yep. So I think it's a good start, but I think that we should keep the value of sorry day throughout the year, just like understanding, you know, about the day and like how sorry we really are. And just acknowledging that throughout the whole year while we, do events and things like that Mm. but in my opinion I feel like the government like Dia said it was a good start but I feel like they should probably try set up more organizations Mm. as well not just like spreading awareness like actually trying to fix their mistakes yeah instead of being like okay we acknowledge that we're sorry that's that like they really need to take action they need to stand by their words yeah well a counterpoint would be, you know, the Closing the Gap project was started. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, I didn't even know it was a thing till you've just mentioned it. So I feel like they need to, like, do more or at least make it a big, like, a more top priority. Yeah. And also another thing, they did set up organisations and they also set up the Close the Gap project to try and um, improve like lives for Indigenous Australians but it has been 12 years since the project started and there has been really really little progress so I think two or three out of seven targets have been met but all the other ones 
either got worse or just haven't improved. Bearing in mind that we are the own, one of the only countries that doesn't have a treaty with our native people is mm. a bit of concerning because like we should have a treaty with them. We need to have a treaty and we need to acknowledge their rights to the land as the first people who were on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're still behind. It was actually, um, they were going to have a treaty, like, many times. Like, it was going to happen, but I think it just kind of got pushed back and just nothing really happened. And I think spreading awareness of this current stolen generation issue can help the treaty to happen. Yeah, if this issue gets more attention, then I feel like the whole problem will slowly improve. Yeah. I feel like there's also the issue of our constitution, as some of them are still allowing racist laws to be passed, and some of them are very outdated. So some of our legislation and the stuff in our constitution needs to be rewritten or amended because it's really quite disrespectful to Indigenous Australians. Yeah. And also... Regarding the Closing the Gap project, um, an idea that um, I've come across is an Indigenous foster care should be added onto the Closing the Gap agenda. So instead of taking kids away and, you know, integrating them into other families, they should just have, like, foster care organisations to take care of the kid while maybe, like, the family improves. And then when it's, like, suitable for the kid to come back, then... Um, do that that sounds like a good idea yeah yeah so I actually like recently watched this thing about how a woman from the past stolen generation and like her sharing her experiences and it was really saddening to hear some of the things that she said Um, so she did find her biological family which I think is really amazing and it's very rare that that happens but it was really saddening that she felt like she couldn't fit in with her own biological family because she was um, brought up to believe that she was European. Like, she wasn't really exposed to her own culture. So she felt like she couldn't fit in. And then with the European settlers, she looked different to them. And she was from a different cultural background. So she felt like she couldn't fit in with the European settlers, nor with her own family. So it was really upsetting to hear. Yeah. They should try and have the bonding with the biological parents. Yeah, so definitely loss of culture and tradition is a big issue as well. Okay, so that sums up our discussion segment as well as today's episode. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Talk Back and make sure to tune into our next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of How to Change the World, a podcast by the Year 10 students of the, the McRobertson Girls High School in Melbourne. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss the other episodes in this series. How to Change the World is produced on the lands of the Kulin Nations. Sovereignty was never ceded.